And I'll thank whoever brought the flowers this morning. I don't know who that was, but it's been so cold and gray. It's nice just to sit and stare at them. So thank you, whoever did that. Uh, The story is reported, it's the quote on the front of your bulletin, that Alexander the Great once uh, learned that in his army was a namesake, another man named Alexander. And this Alexander was named after Alexander the Great, except for this Alexander was a notorious coward. And Alexander the Great, who had conquered the world by the time he was 23, didn't really like that. So he called the soldier and asked him to come and meet Alexander the Great. So young Alexander stands face to face with Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great asked this man, is your name Alexander? Yes. Are you named for or after me? Yes, the trembling coward said. And then the general said, then either be brave or change your name. So you can't be Alexander named Alexander after Alexander the Great and be a coward. If you lived in 325 B.C. and you were named after Alexander the Great, then you had to have a reputation of being brave. In 1640 a man named George Fox stood before a judge and in a very tense moment, he curtly told the judge, Judge, you should tremble at the word of God. And the irritated judge replied, Get this Quaker out of my courtroom. And thus you have the, the, the name Quakers for people who really tremble at God's word. And so if you were known as a Quaker back then, and I suspect to some degree now, you are somebody who is known as somebody who quakes or trembles at the word of God. A hundred years later, in 1740, two brothers, Charles and John Wesley, started small groups, and they were called holy clubs. And in these holy clubs... You followed certain rules and methods in your devotion to Christ. And you're so well known for your rules and methods that if you were in one of these holy clubs, you became a Methodist. And so if you were called a Methodist, then you adhered to the rules and the methods in terms of your pursuit of Jesus. Well, these names and titles, they mean something. They come from somewhere, whether it's Alexander or whether you're a Quaker or whether you're a Methodist. And today we come to this term Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, what is it you're supposed to look like? I mean, what are you supposed to adhere to? What's supposed to be on display? What is it that people should see what you should what should you be representing and boy that's a big question and you can come at the answer to that question in a number of different ways but we'll see from our text this morning it gives us the historical context here in this church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11 this is the very first place where followers of Christ were called Christians it's in about 40 AD and it's in a town that's called Antioch, and the town is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. 
So what I want to do this morning here in these just, just these few verses is let's just walk through the text, make some observations about this congregation in the first century, and ask ourselves as a 21st century congregation, you know, what can I learn from watching this group of first century Christians? Where can I grow? How can I be encouraged? If, if here we are sitting in Wilmington instead of Antioch and we're 2,000 years replaced from that moment, what is it that we can look back here and Acts and say, well, this is something I should know. This is something that should be encouraging to me. This is a place that I can grow if I'm calling myself a Christian. First of all, I want to just give a little background to this uh, text. If you were to look back at chapter 7, you would see that there was a great preacher named Stephen, and he great gave one of the greatest sermons of all time. But the sermon was very explosive, explosive enough that it actually cost him his life. And so after, and I'm not hoping that doesn't happen here this morning for me, but he gave this explosive sermon and immediately was stoned, and then this displacement happened. All the people who were considered followers of Christ in that time, they start, other people started looking around. Hey, who's connected with Stephen? Let's stone them. Let's put them in prison. Let's round them up. And as this rounding up began to happen, the disciples said, hey, at least for the time being, we've got to get out of Jerusalem. And so they start scattering away from Jerusalem. And you might say Stephen's death created the first serious missionary movement. And if you look in chapter 8, which we looked at last week, you could see Philip goes to a place called Samaria, and then he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, which we talked about. Peter goes to Caesarea and meets with a Roman soldier. And then here in Acts chapter 11, you notice in verse 19, now the apostles, I'm sorry, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, now they're traveling even farther and they're going, all these places are north of Jerusalem. Just think of right up the Mediterranean coast, Phoenicia, Cyprus, which is the island out in the Mediterranean, and then Antioch. This is now in modern-day Syria, right on the Syrian-Turkey border, 300 miles outside of uh, Jerusalem and also outside of Israel. And just to get a mental picture of what Antioch would have looked like in the first century, these, this is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So you have Rome itself, and you have Alexandria, and now you have Antioch. This is a huge city. This is a city that is cosmopolitan, meaning it has citizens from all over the world. This is a melting pot. You, you have a, a lot of clashing of cultures in Antioch. You have people who have different backgrounds. They have different looks. They have different cultures, and they're all sort of wrapped into this one city, Antioch. Antioch is a commercial city. It's not only a cosmopolitan city it's a commercial city it stands at a boundary between east and west and so if you're trying to get your goods from the west to the east you got to travel through Antioch and vice versa and so this becomes kind of a hub it's not a seaport but think of it as like a port it's things are flowing into and through the city from east to west and it was not only cosmopolitan and commercial but it was a corrupt city just outside the city was a famous temple to a Greek goddess named Daphne, who, according to the legend, was a very beautiful girl, and she was pursued sexually by the god Apollos. 
And so they celebrated that in Antioch by building a temple out in this garden area just a few miles outside of town. And I don't have to give you the description of what happened at that temple area. If the great God is pursuing a young girl, that's what was happening in the temple area. That's how they celebrated their religion. And so when you come to Antioch, what you you certainly know, the reputation that precedes Antioch is not just that it's cosmopolitan, it's not just that it's commercial, but it's very corrupt. And so that's the city that this group comes to, a complete lack of sexual restraint. Now just imagine for a moment being part of this small band. And you're walking, number one, you're walking 300 miles outside of your home. And you come on the horizon, you see this great city, and you have heard something about Antioch, certainly. And you walk in, you you and this small group, and you say, yes, this is the city. We would love to plant ourselves here. We would love to plant a church here. This is where we want to make home. And that's exactly what they do. So what, what can we learn here? What can we learn about this small church? This is the church that may be the most influential church in all of church history. This is the church that sent wave after wave of missionaries out. This is the church that sent Paul and Barnabas out on the first great missionary journey. When Paul comes back, he goes and visits Jerusalem, but he's also trying to get back to his home church. He's trying to get back to Antioch, and then they send him out again, and then he comes back, and then they send him out again. This is one of the critical churches in all of church history, and so what can we learn as 21st century Christians from this little band who started this church in this very corrupt city what, what did they do? What, what can we learn from them? And I want you to notice the first thing here in verse 19. Those who were scattered, they arrive, and here at the end, they were speaking the word to no one except the Jewish people. Now, this isn't surprising. These people are Jewish people. They're coming out of Jerusalem, and they come into Antioch. And just like you would do if you were going into a new place, you're trying to connect with somebody you might have something in common with. It could be an age. It could be a socioeconomic. It could be a race. In this case, it was a religious group. So, hey, there's, we're Jewish people. We've, we've turned to Christ, but we're coming in. And, hey, there's some Jewish people. And so we can kind of speak the language. We understand what they're thinking. So let's go and talk to them, and that's primarily how missions had gone up until this particular point. But yet here we see just, and we can read right by it and not pick it up, one of the most critical verses here in Acts, or most critical phrases. Look at verse 20. But there were some. That, that, that is a critical phrase in the book of Acts. I think that's a critical phrase for missions. But there were some. There there were some, and we don't even have their names, but they were very brave, they were very courageous, they were groundbreaking, and they decided it was really time to move outward, not just geographically outward, but culturally outward, ethnically outward. 
socioeconomically outward. Here we've been primarily a, a religion to the Jews. Now we're going to spread out to the Hellenists or the, the Greeks or the Gentiles. And we're going to bring that message. And I, I just want you to understand this is a huge step. And one of the reasons it's a huge step back then, and I think it's a huge step for us today, is that you have to shift your allegiance away from your culture to Christ. If you're going to take this kind of step, the one thing you have to do is you have to shift your allegiance away from your culture to Christ. I mean, we saw it so beautifully. I didn't even ask uh, Howard to do this. What does he have to do in order to sit as a 68-year-old man? And Howard, by the way, you look less than 68. I mean, you know, you look really young. But he's sitting there with a bunch of nine-year-olds. That's a shift. See, you have to say, my culture isn't primarily important. What's primarily important is Christ, not my culture. Because if you're just trying to hang on to your culture, you're never going to step outside of that culture. And it could be different in terms of age. It could be different in terms of geography. It could be different in terms of style. It could be all kinds of things. And I think that's what Paul is trying to say is, you know, I'm trying to become all things to all people. So, so no matter where I'm, I'm moving in and out of, the, the primary thing I'm holding on to is Christ. And if I have to go into a Jewish culture and look Jewish, no problem. If I have to go into a Gentile culture and look Gentile, no problem. I'm going to hold on to Christ. That's the one thing I'm going to hold on to. But in terms of your your cultural surroundings, in terms of your cultural trapping, if you really want to be part of this group, the sum, you've got to let go. You've got to switch allegiance from your culture to Christ. And so that's what they did. And that's why it's such a, a huge step. And there's always some in church history. There's always a group. There's always a, a few people that are part of this group. We see it here in Acts. It's Paul and Barnabas. It's Silas and Timothy. They're, they're part of the first missionary band. They're, they're moving into Ephesus. They're mo- moving into Corinth. They're moving into Rome. They're moving into Philippi. They're moving into the area called Galatia. They're, they're moving out into all these big cities. There are some like the Cambridge Seven, 1885, seven young men just graduated from the university in Cambridge. Very promising. One of them probably the most popular athlete in England at the time. And these Cambridge Seven get together and say, you know what, we have all this promise, we have all this popularity, and we have all this wealth, not just financial wealth, but education and background and all this stuff. And you know what? We're going to use it to go to inland China where nobody has any idea who we are. We have no hope of really making a name for ourselves. And so there's a great photo of these seven men. I think it's uh, four of them sitting and three standing behind, all dressed in traditional Chinese garb. Shaved heads, the little... Imagine what their parents might have thought. I mean, you see what they did? They, 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 never, they didn't have an allegiance to their culture any longer. It wasn't that their culture was bad. 
It's just that that wasn't their primary allegiance. Their primary allegiance was to Christ, and Christ was calling them to go out into mainland China. Or Amy Carmichael, who stepped out of a wealthy background in Ireland and stepped into disease and poverty in India. And she spent 55 years rescuing young women from temple prostitution. This white Irish girl who has all kinds of promise, all kinds of hope, says, you know what, I'm going to move to India by myself. And I'm going to rescue these young girls who are in temple prostitution. And she spent her whole life doing it, 55 years. Or or there's some like Jim Rayburn. Jim Rayburn, who was a youth minister in 1940. And he was in a church. And he was noticing that, you know, a lot of the lost kids are not coming to the church. But I'm just right across the street. So what did Jim decide to do? Well, he decided to walk across the street. He decided he'd go and start investing in the lives of lost high school students who would never come and look at him. I mean, it's a small step. It's just across the street, but it's a, it's a huge shift. And little did he know that he was founding Young Life. Just adults willing to say, I'm shifting my allegiance away from my culture, and I'm willing to go and stand in the middle of a totally different culture. So there's always some through church history who are part of a group that you can see here in Antioch, and every generation needs some. Some in the Greek means some. It doesn't mean all. So a couple of observations here. Number one, not everyone did this. It's okay. Some people still had a ministry to the Jews. That's fine. No problem. That, they don't get like rotten tomatoes thrown at them. That's fine. Just some of the people had it in them to, to cross the street. And, and I'm just wondering if you're part of that in this generation. Are you part of that some? I mean, you don't have to travel around the world. You can just travel two miles down the road. You can just go to Lifeline. You, you can, there's so many places that you just say, you know what, I'm willing to take Christ into a, another place. I'll be part of the sum. And, and if you are, I, I want to do everything I can to like, um, what do they call that, a bellows where you... It's the big thing, right, that you, air comes out, you blow it onto an ember, and you hope that ember just blows up into a big fire. I, I just, in the nicest way, I want to be a big bellows right now. I just, I just want to look. I, I don't know who the sum is, but if, if it were you, I would just go like this. I would just try to blow that little ember. Like when, when you hear these stories, you, you go... I wish I could do that. I, I would want to do that. I would like to have a nine-year-old friend. I, but, but somehow, here's what happens. You have all that passion, but, but you walk out the door and you go, ah, oh, my car needs some work and uh, the ball games are on and I'm busy. And, and just, 
it just, that little ember dies off. And so I'm, I'm here just whoo, trying to get that ember. Go back up. We've got to have some people. We cannot all be the other group of people. And some of us have to be the people who are willing to go out. And again, it might be one mile down the road, or some of us might go to Romania and sit with orphans and children who are not going to get care, and they just need someone to hold them while they're dying, like Sarah Smith does. That's all they're looking for. Would you hold me while I die? Because they're not going to get health and recover. We've got to have some people like that. And we've got to, to fan that into flame. And the second thing about this some is if you're going to be a part of this group, I want to ask the question, how is it you're going to be really successful? I mean, if you say, okay, I think I'm that person. I'm a little ember and I hear what you're saying. And I'm about ready to bust into a fire right now. But, but when I go out, what, what's the one thing I've got to have? What's the one thing that's got to be out front? And the answer is in verse 20. But there were some, these men, they came to Antioch and they spoke to the Hellenists, they spoke to the Gentiles, and they preached the Lord Jesus Christ. That has got to be out front. That's got to be, that's what I'm here for. Now, it may not be in your first conversation, but that's what I'm bringing forward. I'm, I'm putting the Word of God out front. Why? Why is that? And the great evangelist of the Apostle Paul tells us, he, he's looking at the Roman Empire. He's not looking at just one person. He's not looking at just one city. He's looking at a whole empire. And you know what he says? He stands up to the whole empire and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so the great evangelist keeps the word of God out front. And the reason I'm so passionate about that, it's so easy to go out there and be the, the ember that pops up into a big flame, but then you just go, I'm just trying to be your friend. And that's not enough. They've got to be Jesus' friend, not just your friend. And so you've got to get the gospel out front. You've got to say, I'm going out there, but I'm, I'm, I'm making sure the gospel's out front. I'm making that the lead of me being a part of the sum. Part two. What if you're not part of the sum? You're not a loser, okay? But you just have an assessment of yourself. Oh, I'm all for that, but I just, it's not, for somehow it's not me. It makes me nervous. I've just, maybe I'm not there yet. Maybe I'll never get there. I don't know what it is, but you just, your self-assessment is, I'm willing to share Christ. I love the Lord. I mean, if somebody's asking, I'm trying, but I'm just not this real pioneer. Great. That's totally fine. Not everyone is. I want you to feel good about that. But I want you to see that what happens with some of these people, they go out and then a great number, verse 21, believe and they turn to the Lord. You see what's happening? You sort of have this first wave. They go out. They say, hey, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And some of them go, okay, great. Now what? Is that, that's it? Okay, good. Happy life. Moving on. No. 
Now the next thing is you need a plan. You need some discipleship. You need some people who can come in behind sort of the, the marine force and say, okay, let's, let's get the discipleship going. When, when you have Matthew 28, Jesus is telling his disciples, go and make what? Converts? No. Disciples. That means somebody mean, needs discipline. That's what that word means. I've been walking very disciplined in this way. It's not a good way, I just found out. And so I need to walk in this way. And in case you haven't figured it out, it doesn't just happen automatically. Discipline just isn't like, wow, I just love discipline, I'm just going in this direction now. It just doesn't happen that way. Somebody has to come and say, hey, I know you're crooked, and I'm going to try to help you get straightened out in this way. I'm going to be the disciple. I'm going to, or the disciple. I'm going to walk alongside and, and help you. And so Barnabas serves as a great role model for us here. And so I want to just, um, the second half of this sermon, talk about five characteristics needed for those who are going to disciple someone else. So I'm a Christian. I'm not really part of the sum. I'm not afraid to share my faith. It's just not my gift. And so I'm willing to be a disciple. I'm willing to be come alongside in some way. What kind of characteristics would I need? And as I thought through these characteristics, I thought of particularly for parents. Because whether you feel like you're good at discipling or not, you're discipling. And so you can just hear it from just that angle. If I'm a parent, here are five characteristics that need to be on display for me as I disciple my kids. They're coming all right out of the text. Verse 23. When he, or Barnabas, came and he saw the grace of God, he rejoices. Jerusalem, just a brand new church, still trying to figure out a lot of stuff. Right at the very beginning, they have this persecution. And people start scattering out, and suddenly it seems like, hey, all kinds of people are meeting the Lord, not just our types of people. And they hear, hey, up in Antioch, that really terrible city, people are really, really meeting the Lord. And they're not even Jewish. They're Greeks. And so we better send somebody up there to see what's going on. And thankfully, they had the wisdom to send up somebody who was an encourager, somebody who was generous. They send Barnabas and say, Barnabas, we trust you. You go up there and you evaluate for us. And Barnabas comes in and he sees the grace of God and he rejoices. And, and my question here in this point is, are you good at rejoicing? Is that a first impulse for you? How do you know it's so important? It's not just, well, Paul picked out a word here, be glad, rejoice, and he's just trying to make a point. It's so critical. And the reason you know Luke is the author of Acts, Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke, and in Luke chapter 15, a very famous passage, Luke lines up intentionally three different parables. Remember this? They're all the same. They all have the same ending. They're all the parables of the lost something. So the first one is the lost sheep. And the guy goes, he leaves his 99, he goes, finds the one, he brings the one back, and what does he say on the way back? Woo-hoo-hoo! I found him! Let's rejoice! Let's have a party! He's screaming, he's letting everybody know, Yes, I found my lost sheep! 
And Luke is saying, it's like that when a lost person comes home to Christ. It's like in heaven, they're like, woo, 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 yeah, this person came home. Big party, big rejoice. The widow loses the little coin. This doesn't seem very valuable. She finds the one coin out of her ten. What does she do? Calls all her neighbors, woo-hoo, party, found my coin. And then the parable of the prodigal son. He goes off. He comes back. Terrible shape. He's done all kinds of things that he does not want to tell his father and he would just like to forget about. Soon as the father sees him, what happens? Party! Let's go! No, No analyzing. No criticizing. No, here's the top ten things you need to work out before you can come on home. It's just, here's a party. And it says the party is so loud, the dancing is so loud, the laughter is so loud that a long way off, you can hear something going on. And people are captured by what's happening. And so my question to you, if you want to disciple somebody, and particularly my question for you as parents, are you good at rejoicing? Or do you go, yeah, that's good, and I'm glad you're in, but, you know, here are the ten things you need to work on right away. You know they need to work on the ten things. They're not, you're not surprised. They won't be surprised. By it. But can you just for a moment just rejoice? Can you just have a party? Can you just cut loose and say, all we're here to do tonight is just have a party. And just be excited about what has happened or, or where you're going or a choice that you've made or are you typically a critiquer, an analyzer? Not that those are bad, but can you not just at, at the first point, just let's just rejoice. I remember when Zachary, my son, who's now at State, took his first few steps. It was 1992, the summer of 92. He was born in the summer of 91. And we were on a month-long assignment at a Young Life camp called Windy Gap. And that's where he took his first few steps. And he takes his first few steps, and you know, it's awesome. But as a dad, I mean, he fell down just like after four or five. I'm like... And no son of mine is just going to be falling down after four or five. Get up, bud! No more falling down. No more face planting after four or five. No, that's not what I did. I didn't like kick him in the shin and say, you know, try again. I mean, I'm at this camp, hundreds of kids at the camp. I'm saying, do you know Jesus? And do you know my son just took his first few steps walking today? And I'm like, look at my son, potential Olympic athlete. And I mean, he's awesome. He's just taking the first few steps. But I'm not criticizing. I'm not analyzing. Look, that left leg looks a little bowed. I don't know. That's going to be a problem. I mean, I'm just celebrating. That's all I'm doing. I'm just celebrating. And the reason I want to just make this point so big is because in a church who's so committed to the Bible, what can happen is a cloud can come over you. And it, 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 it squashes celebration. I don't know why it does that, but it does it. it, it it's something about you've just got to get it right 
And, and God's not like that. He's right. But he'll take a prodigal son without any information and just say, let's have a party. So I would hope that Christ Community Church could exhibit that. I would hope you as a parent could exhibit that. And I would hope if you're not part of the sum, but you're part of a, a group of, a very important group of people who are going to walk alongside, that as you walk alongside, you could learn how to just cut loose and rejoice at times. Number two, verse 23, Barnabas was uh, an encourager. He was an exhorter. In the Greek, it means he was somebody who would come alongside. But, but I want you to notice he's coming alongside with a, a particular purpose. He's encouraging people to remain faithful and to have a steadfast purpose. Uh, you can imagine, you've got to remain faithful. He's encouraging to say, yeah, you were in this spot, now you're in this spot. Let's, hey, let's just stay in this spot. Because I know, I mean, it feels good right now, but there's, it's a big magnetic pull to go back to this spot. So he's just saying, this is a spot. Remember, this is a spot. This spot we want to stay in. And, and you're just going to need to say that as, as a parent. You're going to need to say that as an encourager. Say, you know, we're in this spot. Remember, this is a spot we want to stay in. And you cannot say that too many times. And secondly, he comes alongside with a, a steadfast purpose. He's encouraging them to have a, a steadfast purpose. And I think a better way to think about this is to have a set plan. He's coming alongside and saying, hey, we want to stay in this spot. But, you know, that's just not good enough. That's helpful. But you know what I need? I need a new plan. I know how to stay in this spot, no problem. But I, now I'm in a new spot, and yes, I do want to stay in this new spot, but I need a set plan. I don't know how to walk in this new way. There's no ruts down this road. It's, it's all new to me. So I, can you give me a set plan? And Barnabas comes alongside and says, yeah, here's a set plan. Man, how helpful that would be for the, the young Christian to say, I believe I want to do this, but I need a set plan. I need somebody to just give me the one, two, threes. Help, help me walk alongside. And if you're going to be somebody who's disciples somebody, if you're a parent, you're going to have to help your, your child, your friend, have a set plan. And maybe you're here and you're saying, you know, I've just grown up and I've been a churchgoer, but I've never had anybody walk alongside and just give me a, a plan. And if you need that, I hope you would have the courage to, to see me after church or to call me or call the office and we can get you in touch with somebody who said, hey, great phone call. Now, now, let's try to have somebody who would walk alongside with a, with a set plan. If you're going to be a good person, a good discipler, you're going to have to be somebody who rejoices, somebody who encourages. In verse 24, you're going to have to be a person of character. You see this here. Barnabas was a good man. What makes a man good? Well, again, the answer right in the text, full of the Holy Spirit. 
That's a good man. But what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Well, I think if you look in Galatians 5.22, what are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, he's full of it. In other words, all these nine characteristics are, are pouring out of, of Barnabas. He's not a fake. He's not a phony. If you see Barnabas in Antioch on Sunday, and then you see Barnabas in Antioch on Friday night, you get the same Barnabas. He's full of it. Everywhere you cut him, everywhere you meet him, he's always pouring out the Holy Spirit all the time. And he's full of faith, it says, which I believe means he was God-confident rather than self-confident. He walked alongside people who had all kinds of limps and said, you know what? He who began a good work in you, he will be faithful. I may not be faithful, but God will be faithful to bring you to the very end. Fourth characteristic, if you're going to be good at discipling, is you're going to have to have partnership. The, the crowd begins to, to grow in such a way, we see in verse 25 and 26, that it's really beyond Barnabas's capability of reaching all these people or walking alongside of all these people. And so he goes and finds his old friend Saul or Paul. And I think this is just so helpful because Paul had a different gift set. You get the sense that, that um, Barnabas is an encourager. He's a little bit more pastoral. Paul is a teacher. And so Barnabas sees, hey, I need another person here. I need somebody who's got a different set of gifts. I need to bring somebody in on this discipleship process. I've got some, even in myself, I've got some gaps or holes. If somebody's just hearing it all from one vantage point, there's going to be something missing. So I'm not threatened to go get somebody else. I'm not threatened to have somebody else come in on this project. And that's just so critical, especially if you're a parent. You've got to have some other group of people coming in beside your kid and saying, it's like this, but they have a different gift set. They have a different kind of personality, something that your kids could see in a way that you just couldn't do. And so you have to think intentionally as a parent, who are the people I'm exposing my son or daughter to? Where, where am I intentionally and not threatened? I'm allowing a relationship to bloom or blossom because they're going to be able to see something that I just couldn't possibly supply all by myself. And so it's not something you can do all by yourself if you're going to be a good disciple or you're going to have to bring people in. And finally, verse 26, there was time and teaching. You see this, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. I read these kinds of things and go... I wish I was at a church like that. How would you like to come to church and say, well, who's preaching today? Paul or Barnabas? I mean, what? you can't lose, right? Like, awesome, the Apostle Paul. Awesome, Barnabas. I mean, just well, how would you like to be in that kind of place? Hey, who's your small group leader? Paul, he's my small group leader. He teaches me every week. I mean, <laughs> awesome. And here a whole year, you get to be in the small group with the Apostle Paul. A whole year. 
You could sit under the teaching of Barnabas a whole year. I mean, what a degree you'd have at the end. But I, but I think when we look at Paul and Barnabas, they saw it's going to take a lot of time and it's going to take a lot of teaching. It's not just, hey, let me give you this nugget and you sort of run with it and see how far it goes and then get one more nugget. It's, it's going to take time. You know, for my son or daughter to walk, it took about a year. But teaching them where to walk, that's a much longer process. And so I might be around for a year and just see somebody walk into the kingdom. And what a great moment. I mean, there's really hardly anything better. But it's going to take a long time to walk in a new direction. And it's going to take people who are committed time and teaching. And isn't it interesting that the thing that you must have if you're going to be part of the sum to be successful is the same thing you must have if you're going to be part of the discipleship team. You've got to have the Word of God. I can't be teaching people just about myself, my experience. I've got to show them the gospel. I've got to remind them of the Word of God all the way along. Well, what can we learn? What, what, what hearing this group of first century pioneers, where, where have you been challenged? If you're part of the sum, or you're thinking about it, have you really shifted your allegiance away from your culture to Christ? If, if you think about yourself as a parent or somebody who's going to walk alongside what, of these five characteristics, where, what's a strength? What's a, what's a weakness? Apparently, this group came to Antioch and people looked at them and said, well, they don't fit into any other category. We've got lots of categories here, but this is a different group. We've got to give this group a label. And so they kept looking at them and said, well... These people really are following Jesus. They're Christ's followers. We'll just call them Christians. If you would call yourself a Christian, people followed after you for a whole year. Would they call you that at the end of the year? See, people are watching. It's a very powerful witness just how you live your life. Let's pray together. Lord, this is like five sermons I felt like this morning. From seven verses, eight verses. So much here, so much information, so much challenge. Thank you for this small band of first century Christians who were the real deal. They were willing to move into a city that probably didn't look very good spiritually and say, we're going to stay here. We're going to plant a church here that's going to be one of the most important church planting projects in all of church history from this corrupt city. And so we're sure it's your hand. Same thing needs to happen today. 
that kind of church needs to be planted in Wilmington, North Carolina, in Charlotte, in Los Angeles, in Dallas, in Hong Kong, in Calcutta, in Baghdad. I mean, all around the world, some places are more difficult than others. But I would pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and do something I can't. I can't.